Good morning. We are thankful for your attendance this morning to everyone that is here with us. Uh, we've got several of our sick who are able to be with us this morning, uh, some who are not always able to be out. We're thankful to see you this morning, that you're filling up to being here. Many of those folks, uh, they always say, I try to get up, I plan to be up on Sunday morning, and then I just get to feeling bad again. But we are thankful that you have been able to be with us this morning. It's really good because we've got a lot of our own visitors who are out this morning or excuse me, a lot of our own members who are out this morning. We've got some as far away as Memphis who are doing several things. We've got uh, some who are our young people. We've got at least five of our young people and three of our chaperones who are at Evangelism University out in Savannah, Tennessee that should be uh, worshiping even this very moment as we speak as well there in Savannah, and then we'll be traveling back. Uh, and then we've just got some who are on vacation other places. I counted about 20 or so of our own folks would be out this morning. And so we knew the number might be down, but we've got a lot of visitors with us, and we are thankful that you are here. We've got several visiting with us this morning. Uh, who are members, are family members of some of our uh, recently passed members and friends. We're thankful that some of uh, Herman Ag's family are with us this morning. Many of you remember Brother Herman as well as uh, Bob's son, Jerry, uh, Bob Shriver's son, Jerry. And of course, we're thankful that our brother Bill could be back with us as well as his son, Theryl, and uh, his wife, Beth. Thankful to see some of A.B.'s family here. Uh, it's wonderful when we can be together as a family. And we're thankful for your attendance this morning and the opportunity uh, to come together and study God's Word for just a few moments. If you can be back with us again this evening uh, at 6 o'clock, we're going to be worshiping again. Tonight, we're going to be looking at one of our songs. We talk about that a lot, sometimes paying attention to the words that we sing and understanding the words that we sing. And tonight, we're going to take a, a look at the song, Rescue the Perishing exactly what that means for us and make some application for our life. And so we hope that you can be back with us anytime that it is possible, but we're certainly grateful that you are here this morning. Some of you may recognize this lady who is on the screen. You may recognize her face. Her name was Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey. She had a troubled childhood like many people in our country today, many people in the world who grow up in a troubled home with lots of things going on. It was marked with family trouble. There was abuse. There was addiction both by her parents and even by her as she grew up and got a little older in life. There was addiction. In 1965, Miss McCorvey became pregnant. She delivered a baby, a little baby girl, and that baby uh, was eventually given up to her mother, McCorvey's mother, uh, with full custody. Within about a year, because within a year, probably around 1966, she became pregnant a second time with a little child and delivered that baby who was then placed up for adoption. But it was in 1969 that McCorvey became pregnant for a third time, and this time she considered abortion. She wanted to falsify a rape charge so that she could get a legal abortion in the state of Texas. Uh, she wanted to, to claim rape, but she had no police report. There was no evidence, so she decided against going through that route. She considered an illegal abortion as well. And interesting to note that uh, the way the story goes, that that illegal abortion clinic uh, that she considered visiting had just recently been shut down by the police. And eventually she was referred to Texas lawyers Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. And it was at this time that Norma McCorvey became known as Jane Rowe. And her case against the Dallas District Attorney Henry Wade became known as Roe versus Wade. You probably are certainly familiar with that title, that name, that case. 
You're probably familiar with some of the facts that went along or some of the interesting facts that went along with that case. Like it took three years to get to the Supreme Court from the time that it began to go all the way to that decision. Miss McCorby never actually attended a trial the way that I understand it or read it. Never attended a single day of trial during that time. And of course, uh, ironic, I don't know, interesting, maybe what the correct term would be. But by the time that the Supreme Court actually rendered its decision, that baby, of course, was born. And it was given up for adoption. And abortion wasn't even an option for her anymore, of course, after the span of three years. This Wednesday is, will be January 22nd. It will be the 47-year anniversary of what was then Monday, January 22nd, 1973, in which the Supreme Court issued a 7-2 decision holding that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution provides a right to privacy that, pro that protects a woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. On January 13th in 1984, then-President Ronald Reagan proclaimed that January 22nd of that year, 1984, being the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, would be considered National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Reagan soon right after that changed it to be the Sunday that was closest to the anniversary of that landmark decision. So today, we and many others around the world and the country in particular will mark the 36-year anniversary of Ronald Reagan's proclamation, and we want to celebrate National Sanctity of Human Life Day. You're probably somewhat familiar with the staggering statistics that we know to go along with this decision by the Supreme Court. The most baffling, and maybe you've seen a graphic like this such before, but since that day, January 22nd of 1973, as best as records can be recorded and reported for us, there have been over 61 million abortions since that day. If you can read that, each one of those red crosses equals 1 million at the top. And of course, the interesting fact to try to drive home the point of how serious this is, of how impactful it has been upon our world, is the one and a half crosses at the bottom, which would resemble or recognize American casualties of war from every war since, and that's not a typo, 1775. You can even look it up on the internet. It will amount to about 1.5 million American casualties of war from war or during war since 1775. That includes World War II, World War I, Vietnam, yes, even the Revolutionary War, and yes, even our own Civil War, for crying out loud. One, well, in today's numbers, if you look at the last couple of years, the average number of abortions or the number that have been reported, even in today's world, 2017, 18, and 19, it amounts to one every 34 seconds. One every 34 seconds. If we just be generous and round down to 30 seconds, that's two every minute. And that's 60, 60, 60 just in the 30 minutes that we will be talking here together before I finish speaking. There is a slice of good news, a small slice of good news, in that as the research goes, it would appear that over the last 10 years or so, there has been a small decline every year in abortions in the United States of America, and we are certainly thankful for that. But what a decision. What a decision it was at that time 
What long-lasting effects upon millions and millions of people and families. And for us today, as we think about this this morning, as in anything that we attempt to do, as in anything that we attempt to make a decision on, or that we attempt to hold a belief or hold a position on, all that ultimately matters, of course, is what does the Bible say? Strip away your political leanings, take away what your grandparents may have always said or what your state senator says. What does the Bible say about the matter of abortion? There's one very strong argument this morning, and it goes something like this. If you've got your outline in front of you, the word to fill in in the first blanks in the bulletin is brephos. Now, that's somewhat or close to the Greek as I can get using PowerPoint there at the top, and then the translation of the word that is brephos that is found in the Bible. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you may want to look at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 1 and verse number 41, we see what is going to become John the baptizer who is in his mother's womb, his mother is Elizabeth, Elizabeth's cousin Mary comes to visit her, and in verse number 41 it says, And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. She hears Mary's voice as Mary enters into the house or the room or wherever. She can hear Mary speaking that the brephos, the babe, leaped in her womb, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That word brephos, the Greek word there, is just translated as as babe, as baby, if you will. So the brephos leaped in her womb. John the baptizer, recognizing that Mary had come in, leaped in the womb, inside the womb of Elizabeth. We go forward to Luke chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 2. You can see actually in verse number 12 to begin with that the shepherds, those shepherds are in the field. They see an angel of the Lord that appears to them. And the angel says, if you will go to the city of David, you will see and find a brephos, a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. You go forward to verse number 16 and we find that brephos, that babe. Luke records for us, and they, that's the shepherds, came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the brephos, the baby lying in a manger. We can actually go even further forward in Luke's account of the gospel to Luke chapter 18 in verse number 15 where the Bible says that then they also brought Brephos infants to him. They bring infants to Jesus. So this morning I have to ask you when we look at that, it helps us to understand that a baby inside a mother's womb or the baby outside the mother's womb or even a baby that is six months, ten months, one year, two years old, we might consider an infant. The Bible considers all of those babies the same thing, a brephos, a baby. You see, to, to lay the foundation this morning to begin to understand this, we have to understand that life begins at conception. Plain and simple. Life begins at conception. Again, you've probably seen the flyers or heard sermons before on some of these important things, such as the fact that at three weeks, about 20, 21 days, three weeks, the heart begins to beat inside that baby, that brephos. At six weeks, I mean, you women know how long nine months is, right? When you're carrying a baby, I mean, nine months seems forever away. But at six weeks, after the three weeks, the brain waves. Brain waves can be detectable in babies. And yes, even at eight weeks, again, far away from what would hopefully be a nine-month delivery, but, but at eight weeks, every organ is in place. The bones are beginning to form. And yes, even those things that will be known as for the rest of our life, our fingerprints 
are formed. And you can tell this as you look at a baby. Life begins at conception. It helps us to look at the word brephos to understand exactly what we mean and what we're talking about. Exactly the way that God, by inspiration through the Holy Spirit, through Luke's writings, would encourage us to understand that the baby who is inside the mother's womb is, yes, the same as the baby outside the mother's womb. You know, I heard a preacher recently tell this it's not really a joke, it's not really funny, but it's a story that said that there was a, a woman one time who had two children. She had a five-year-old and a two-year-old. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, yes, the test is positive. You are pre uh, pregnant. Congratulations. You're pregnant. She said, oh, no, doc, I, I can't afford another baby. You know, I, I can't afford to have a, a third child, and so I don't know what I'm going to do. And the doctor said, well, okay, then let's kill the two-year-old. Of course, that woman said, no way. Why would you even begin to say that? Why would you even suggest that? He said, well, you know, I mean, when you think about abortion, abortion poses a lot of risks to the mother as well to go through that medical procedure. So it might be just as well for you that you allow this baby to go full term. And, and then if you can't afford three children, then we'll just we'll kill your two year old and that will then solve your problems. Folks, that, that's reprehensible, as reprehensible as it sounds. That's as sickening as it sounds to even say it. It's not even a joke, although it almost sounds funny that a doctor would say that to a woman. But when we consider life that we're talking about, life beginning at conception, this idea of a baby inside the womb who would be there within moments and within hours or days, then it's okay to take that baby's life. We've got to really consider some things. So this morning, I'd like for us to go a little bit further and, and designate some terms this morning. If you've got your outline, these are on there. But to understand exactly what we're talking about and some of these terms. First of all, the name of the fetus is baby. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the idea of fetus may be a perfectly acceptable scientific term. I, I understand that. But it's not just a fetus. It's not just a thing. It's not just an embryo or a cluster of cells, as some people would claim. If life begins at conception, and it does, then the thing, the fetus, is baby, is a baby. Just as we talked about a few moments ago with this idea, this word, brephos, understanding exactly what that means. The thing, the fetus, is a baby. It's more than just some of these so-called scientists and their terms come up with that they use to describe this thing, this fetus. Again, some of them are perfectly uh, scientific and normal to use, but we must understand when we're defining our terms that the fetus is a baby. And when we understand that and we use that phraseology, we use that term, especially as we're talking to our friends and those in the world, then maybe we can begin to make a little headway, a little understanding in this discussion. Number two, the name of the owner is God. The name of the owner is God. I don't know that you'll be able to make that out. I noticed earlier it was a little, uh, a little faint there, but it's Psalm chapter 139, if you've got your Bible in front of you. Psalm 139, beginning in verse number 13. You've no doubt heard these verses before. For you, the psalmist said, a psalm of David, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, 
the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. We know that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 26, God says, let us, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, he says. We're made in the image of God. I love the psalmist there in Psalm 139, but very simply, we are made in the image of God. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 9, Hebrews 12, 9, the Hebrew writer says, <clears throat> we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? The father, of course, there being God, the father, the father of heaven, the father of us here. God, the creator, should we not much more be in subjection to the father of spirits? Absolutely. So question for you this morning, who owns you? Who owns you? Paul would write to those in Corinth in first Corinthians chapter six and verse number 20, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's who owns you question. Who owns that baby? The name of the fetus, the name of the thing is baby. The name of the owner is God. And then third this morning in defining our terms, the name of the procedure is, is murder. Now here's where we can get in a little bit of shaky ground. Some folks might say it gets a little uncomfortable for us sometimes to have this discussion with people. I understand that. It's not easy. It's certainly a, a politically charged idea and something to discuss in our world today. But you understand that murder is not just killing, right? There's a difference in killing and murder. And, and I've got a definition here for you. I, I heard this recently by Brother Glenn Colley from the West Huntsville congregation. And I, I like it and will probably use it uh, going forward for me for all time because I think it really drives home the point we're trying to make with this idea. That murder is the deliberate taking of innocent human life. Now those words are underlined but they're not in your bulletin. The reason is I wanted to highlight them for you to understand the deliberate taking of innocent human life. I don't know how many deer hunters or maybe even animal hunters we have here. I know we've got some. I'm always thankful when Barry does it because he brings it and shares it on game night with us sometimes. So thankful for that. Human life. We're not talking about an animal that, that, that God gave us to be dominion over, that, that we could kill and eat, that, that we can be responsible for in that sense, and deer hunting, but we're talking about a human life when it comes to this idea of murder. What about if, if, God forbid, we were to leave here in just a few moments and you go out the parking lot and you go down to the bottom of the hill and you pull out in front of somebody? I mean, just, just didn't see him come and look the other way and pull out in front of somebody. And unfortunately, that person dies and succumbs to their injuries from that car accident. It was just an accident, right? It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't deliberate. We wouldn't call that murder, would we? What about the idea of innocent? I don't, we don't have time this morning to get into the ins and outs of capital punishment, but, but capital punishment is not the taking of innocent life. It is the taking of guilty life, and it's certainly something <clears throat> that is discussed in the Bible from time to time. We don't have time to get into all that this morning, but the deliberate taking of innocent human life. What about abortion? We know in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 17, Proverbs six seventeen, the Bible says there are things that God hates. That God hates. And let me ask you this. Do you know one of those nice people in the world? You know, one of those people that you just say, oh, they're so kind and sweet. 
I mean, they don't hate anything. And then you find out maybe they're against something or they don't like something. You say, boy, if they're against it, then it must be pretty bad. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. We know from Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 34 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The deliberate taking of innocent human life. If we're going to be honest, if we're going to define our terms, we have to understand what we're talking about with this procedure. Now, there are many arguments that are given to try to justify a woman's right to have an abortion. There, of course, is the the rape argument or even the incest argument. There is the health of the mother or the health of the child. And as terrible as those situations are, and trust me, I don't ever want to find myself in one of those situations of having to determine what to do. As awful of a decision as that might be for a parent or parents to make, to decide, the circumstances don't matter when we're talking about a baby's life. There's never a right time to do the wrong thing. There are so many options, especially in our world today, and so many people who are willing to help a woman, both younger or older, who has found herself in this terrible situation of being pregnant and not wanting, as we say, the baby. The circumstances don't matter because the value is in the human life that happens at conception. As is usually the case, as we've already said here, I don't, I don't have time in our few moments together this morning to cover all of this material. I, I took a screenshot here of an article on the House to House Heart to Heart website. It's entitled Abortion Wrongs, if you can't see that with the color there, but Abortion Wrongs. We share House to House here. We mail it out. Uh, you can use their website for all kinds of tools, and, and this is a wonderful one that discusses some of those types of things in detail. I would always point you towards sound brethren and places to find information. Abortion is wrong. From a biblical perspective, in God's eyes, plain and simple. It's not unforgivable as we think about those who might have gone through this in the past, but it is something that we should consider and helping others consider avoiding at all costs. Now, because of our good friend Paul Harvey, many of us are interested in the rest of the story in our life. In 1995, Jane Rowe, Norma McCorvey, became a believer. She changed her stance, regretted her previous decisions, and was eventually accepted into the Roman Catholic Church three years later in 1998. That's the New York Times page there that says Jane Rowe joins anti-abortion group. And some of you may recall that happening. In her book entitled One by Love, Norma McCorvey's book, One by Love, published that same year of 1998, she wrote these words, and it's a little lengthy, but I wanted to share it, and I'll try to get through it here. I was sitting in Operation Rescue's offices, which was an anti-abortion group. I was sitting in Operation Rescue's offices when I noticed a fetal development poster. The progression was so obvious, the eyes were so sweet. It hurt my heart just looking at them. I ran outside and finally it dawned on me. Norma, I said to myself, they're right. I had worked with pregnant women for years. I'd been through three pregnancies and deliveries myself. I should have known. Yet something in that poster made me lose my breath. I kept seeing the picture of that tiny 10-week-old embryo. And I said to myself, that's a baby. It's as if blinders just fell off my eyes and I suddenly understood the truth. That's a baby. I felt crushed under the truth of this realization. I had to face up to the awful reality. Abortion wasn't about products of conception. It was about children being killed in their mother's wombs. 
All those years, I was wrong. Signing that affidavit, I was wrong. Working in an abortion clinic, I was wrong. No more of this first trimester, second trimester, third trimester stuff. Abortion at any point was wrong. It was so clear, painfully clear. So where do we go from here? For us this morning, sitting here thinking about these things, besides understanding what the Bible has to say about the issue, what can we learn? Three lessons and the sermon will be yours. Number one, we have a voice and we have to use it. We can't be silent. Now that looks like different things and in different ways at different times. Sometimes, yes, that absolutely looks like voting. It looks like voting for the candidate who would support those who we call pro-life, who would be anti-abortion. It looks like speaking out. Maybe it's with family members, maybe it's with friends. Sometimes that looks like volunteering, whether that is maybe not necessarily even to cause a a, a hateful protest, but to volunteer at a clinic somewhere or, or volunteering in some form. That's what it looks like to use our voice. We think about the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 through 16, when he talks about being the salt and the light. That means having a voice and using it. Yes, God has blessed us with a physical voice that we can speak out physically and use our voice, but he's blessed us with many other ways. Online, in writing, in person with our voice that we can go and we should stand up and we should speak up. We have a voice and we have to use it. There are certainly many people out there who use it in a hateful way that cause more division, and we have to be very careful. We cannot sit idly by. We cannot remain silent. One of the lessons for us from this is we have a voice. We have to use it. Number two, in your outline there, if you've got your bulletin, even those who seem furthest from the truth can turn to God. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us or to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all, that's all, A-L-L, that all should come to repentance. Does that mean you? It does. Does that mean me? It does. Does that mean Norma McCorvey? It did, although she has already passed away at this point. But that all should come to repentance. Even those who seem furthest from the truth, God wants to repent and be made whole. Think about Acts chapter 22, the whole chapter there as Paul recounts his story before the Jerusalem mob. Yes, even stone-cold killer Paul, Saul, could become Paul and turn from the error of his ways. And of course, one of the most well-known stories in all of the world, in Matthew chapter 27 and verses 3 through 10, the betrayer of our Savior, Judas. Judas learned a really hard lesson kind of in connection with this. What did he do? He threw the money back at those that had paid him. But what did he learn? He wasn't going to bring Jesus back. It was too late at that point for him. So God expects those, all those who are sinners to come to him and repent. But at some point it becomes too late. It's too late for those 61 million babies. It's too late for others. It's not too late for you and for me even this day. Even those who seem furthest from the truth can turn to God, and some do. And we're thankful for that opportunity. And number three this morning, we are citizens of these great United States of America, but we're citizens first of heaven. Listen, I love this country. I don't, I don't want to live anywhere else. 
But I heard Brother John D. Berry, some of you are familiar with Brother John. He is a preacher of the gospel in Memphis and also a state senator uh, for the state of Tennessee from the Memphis area. And he gave a lesson on abortion and I was listening to part of it and he made this statement. It's not the elephant and it's not the donkey. It's the lamb. It's the lamb of God. That's who we serve. I'm thankful for this country. I'm thankful that we are protected by the greatest document ever created by mankind. And it is the greatest document created by mankind because it is based in part off of the greatest document ever given to man, the Bible. I love my freedom. I love this nation. But we need to be reminded that we are citizens of heaven. This world is not my home. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 4, I never can get through it. But we're reminded that there's a place that there's no more sorrow. There's no more crying. There's no more death. There's no more pain. We are citizens of heaven. And Paul says it very plainly in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's as plain and simple as that. And we need to remember that as much as we love this country and we pray for this country, we are citizens of heaven. Brother DeBerry said it this way. We are a colony of heaven on earth. I thought that was pretty interesting to consider. We are citizens of these great United States, but we're citizens of heaven as well. We're about to extend the Lord's invitation, and if you would like to set your Bible aside and get out your psalm book, that's perfectly fine. When we think about abortion, what ought to be the safest place in the world? The safest place in the world, beneath his or her mother's heart and inside her womb, The safest place in the world instead is the site of a massacre in our country today. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Do we mean those words? That all, A-L-L, all life is precious to our Heavenly Father? If we do, then we cannot remain silent. Not on abortion, not on anything pertaining to the good news of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes in this debate, you are understood to either be pro-life or pro-choice. Last year, we shared a lesson here from this very pulpit about the fact that God is actually pro-choice. He is actually for our having a choice. That's why Joshua could say, choose you this day whom you serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God is pro-choice on whether or not to have a child, but not after conception. He's pro-choice before the action is taken that would cause there to be a pregnancy and a child. And this morning, he remains pro-choice relative to our salvation. He sent his only begotten son, but he also doesn't force us to obey him. He is long-suffering that all should come to repentance, but he doesn't just make every person saved without us doing anything. We have to obey his commands. This morning, his new covenant, for his new covenant, that involves the things that are listed here on the screen. Hearing the word of God, believing that word, Repenting of our sins, making a change, a change of mind, turning away from those sins and confessing before even this great audience that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You're then ready to be baptized for the remission of your sins. The beautiful part of that is partaking in the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus went into the grave and he rose again. We go into a watery grave of baptism and we rise again to walk in a newness of life. It is then that the Lord adds you to his church And you can begin to live faithfully. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a child of God. And you've done that in times past. You've been baptized for the remission of your sins. But you've wandered away. 
I know on lessons like this morning, sometimes people say, well, I can't respond because you know, the lesson was about abortion or the lesson was about lying or, or whatever. No, the Lord's invitation is always open. And regardless of the lesson, that whatever the lesson is about, the door is open. And we're about to sing this song of encouragement that whether you need to become a child of God or come back to him, you would not delay. Do not put off till tomorrow. Do not even put off till later today. We would gladly assist you in becoming a Christian or coming back to him even now as we stand together and as we sing.